This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning, I drove from my home in Oviedo here, took about half an hour, and I believe I broke no traffic laws and hit no one. And I say that not to get your applause or anything, but to point out that that's actually rather miraculous. Just a few short hours ago, I was waking up, having been jolted by small children, and I rolled out of bed, and at that point, if I opened my eyes... Truth be told, I couldn't tell a green light from a red light, not at any distance. I couldn't see any turn signal, and any object about 20 or 30 feet from me would be rather nondescript, and I couldn't tell you what they're doing, if they're speeding up or slowing down. But by the time I got in my car and had my wallet with my driver's license in it, I was able to drive and navigate safely here. My license has a restriction, restriction A. Some of you are right there with me, members of the club. We are not allowed out in a car or in heavy machinery without corrective lenses because we cannot see what's going on around us clearly. We can't tell the color of the light. We can't tell what's happening with that car. Are they turning left or are they zagging right? We can't tell what's going on unless we have contacts or glasses. But miraculously, there are contact lenses, and there are eyeglasses, and you can drive around with your vision corrected, and it works, and here I am. And that's somewhat miraculous. The cavemen couldn't have enjoyed that, right? Bausch and Lomb was not around to help them out. If they couldn't tell which way the rock was rolling, they were stuck, and they might get hit. But you know what? It's, it's not just driving. It's not just navigating uh, what you see or don't see with your eyes. It's also understanding yourself and your world and the way that you relate to God in which our eyes are hindered. John Calvin, the, the theologian of several centuries ago, said that the Bible is like a set of spectacles, that old fangled word for glasses, lenses, 
that correct our distorted view of God, of the world, even of ourselves. And in this series, as we look at the four-part story that the Bible presents, what we're really receiving are a set of corrective lenses that we can look at our daily experience, that we can look at our aspirations and dreams, that we can look at our frustrations and struggles, and that our misperceptions, our false assumptions, they can be corrected, they can be recalibrated so that we can go about life not fleeing ourselves into danger and peril and accident upon accident, but that we might flourish and enjoy blessing and even glory. And this day, as we look at Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, we're considering that third stage in the biblical story. Damien mentioned it earlier. We're considering the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ and the lens that provides for understanding a whole slew of things. In fact, our text will say all things are to be viewed through that lens of redemption that God has put forward for us in Jesus Christ. And it's fascinating to see how Paul introduces this portion of the letter to the Ephesians. He commends his audience. He says, I've heard of your faith that you have toward God, And I have heard of the love that you have toward the saints. In other words, these are the folks who seem to be doing well. And in fact, as as we study history and we look at the Bible and its surrounding documents of the first century, we see this is actually a, a remarkably nice time in a peaceful setting. It's rare. If you read your New Testament, you'll notice you seem to go from crisis to crisis. It's kind of like the 24-hour news cycle. Basically, every letter in the New Testament is dealing with some sort of situation that is a problem. An alarm has been raised, a signal has been sounded, and a Paul or a Peter has to intervene. And then you come to Ephesians, and there's no problem. Now, don't be too impressed. Problems will come, and by the time... Paul's addressing Timothy, who's going to pastor the church in Ephesus. He's going to have to warn them about problems that will be setting in soon, that he needs to be on guard against. And by the time you read the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 and 3, you see that problems have already set in. But at this time, and in this letter, things look good. They're doing okay. There's there's no remarkable division amongst the members of the church. There's no heinous sin that needs to be intervened or dealt with. There's no major cultural shakeup that they've got to respond to. It's it's kind of a serene and peaceful moment. But Paul has more to say to them, and he has, as we see here, more to pray for them. And so this is a rather remarkable way of seeing what does maturity look like? What does growth look like? For those who are in Christ, for those who are strengthened by the Holy Spirit, for those who are enfolded into the church community, what do you hope for them? We know, of course, if someone is not saved, if someone is not a part of the church, and if someone is struggling from crisis to crisis, there's some really alarming basic needs. We pray for them. We pray that they would be saved by Christ. We pray that they would be drawn into community with brothers and sisters. We pray that uh, they would find peace, right? But what do you pray for folks who seem to be doing reasonably well? You pray these words. Paul prays that 
something would happen to the eyes of their heart, that the Holy Spirit would be given, that they would have certain understanding and knowledge. And as we consider this prayer that Paul shares with them, it's as though they're able to overhear how he talks to God about them. We'll see a couple things that help us to appreciate the redemption we have in Christ and the lens it provides for our own lives, for looking at those around us, and for looking at our world. We'll see a couple things. And the first thing we see is in verse 18. If you look there, in verse 18 he prays that your eyes of your hearts would be enlightened that, or so that, you may know what's the hope to which he, God the Father, has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The first thing we see as we look at the redemption we have in Christ Jesus is that in his redemption we have the hope of glory. Or to, to put it in slightly other words, that God wants to give you glory and that God is making good on that hope and that promise. That's not a small thing. If you're honest, I think from time to time, you probably, like me, struggle with the idea that God really wants to do you well. You think, well, why would he? Right? We've, we sung earlier about how he's a good, good father, and he loves, and, and that's who he is, and that we're loved of him, and, and that's who I am, that's who I am. But, but oftentimes, as you look at the mirror in the morning, that's probably not your first thought. You think back to the errant word you, you let slip the night before. Or you thought about the ways in which you looked down upon other people, and you were judgmental, right? You, you think about the, the kind of entitlement, arrogance that you carry about with you every day, or the pride and the presumption that comes so naturally, or even the shame and the despair that seems to, to be a weight that you can't get off your shoulders, and that God would love me, that God would want to give me glory and blessing and do me well, that, that oftentimes isn't the most natural thought, right? Oftentimes we're not aware of God's desire to give us the hope of glory, you know, one of the most remarkable views that I think I've ever seen has been from a building in downtown Fort Lauderdale where I used to live. And in downtown Fort Lauderdale, you're about three quarters of a mile in from the beach. But the three quarters of a mile that you're in from the beach are entirely streets full of canals. Every street has a canal in between it. And so if you are in a high rise in downtown Fort Lauderdale, you have not only a beach view looking out over the Atlantic Ocean, but all the way to the beach, you have a view of these remarkable canals, more than in Venice. And it's absolutely picturesque. You can look down the New River, and you can see yachts. You can look down Las Olas Boulevard, and you can see people scurrying about participating in the life and the culture of the city, playing and working right there. And so there's activity down beneath you, there's God's glorious creation out in front of you, and there's just this remarkable vista before you. But you know what? You can 
be in one of the highest high-rises in that place, on that river, before that ocean and those many canals, and see nothing. Because one of the most significant high-rises right there in downtown Fort Lauderdale is the city jail. Over a dozen stories tall, right there on the river, hundreds of feet high, in the thick of the action, without windows. And there are lots of men and women in that building, and they are surrounded by paradise. They could see sunrise over the ocean, they could see sunset over the Everglades to the west. They could see activity in the city all around them if only they had windows. But they don't because they're in jail. And Paul understands, as he'll make real plain in the next set of verses, chapter two, one to three, that you and I are in jail. That so often we walk around as if we're in a world without windows. There are glories, there is beauty, there is blessing, there is richness all around us. And it's as though we have blinders on. And so Paul prays, even for Christians in Ephesus, even for those in Christ, that our eyes would be opened, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Can you imagine the delight that one of those prisoners would have if sitting there in that cell, suddenly they were enlightened? If, if a window were carved out in that exterior wall and suddenly all the brilliance of the sun's glory could shine in and they could peer out and see all the beauty of creation and civilization around them. What hope, what joy, what delight would they find? And Paul knows we struggle with that. We struggle living as if we're in a world without windows. And we do that not just because we're particularly slow people, but because that's the way the world goes. If you watched the news last night, if you picked up the Orlando Sentinel this morning, you will have caught nary a word about God and his blessings, about the glories of salvation, about the most significant things going on. I know you might feel, at least some of you, that I4 Ultimate is the most significant thing going on and on and on, but it's not. God is saving people. God is enlightening people. God is granting joy and blessing and our culture doesn't point us to that. Our media don't point us to that. And our very hearts so often don't cue us into that. And so Paul prays that as we look at the redemption we have in Christ Jesus, that God set forth his son that he might die as a sacrifice on our behalf. And that he might be raised from the dead for our justification. That in that we would see that God has your greatest interests at heart. That God is not against you. That God is not to condemn you. The one who would condemn, Paul wrote the Romans in chapter eight, is Christ Jesus. And he's the one who has willingly gone to the cross on your behalf. And so in the cross and the resurrection and the redemption we have, we see a lens into the very character of God that he wants to bless us. But you know, there's a second facet to understanding the way in which Redemption reveals or gives us a lens to see the hope of glory. 
maybe we can be convinced, okay, God means to bless me. God's, God's not a hater. God's not angry with me because of Jesus. But oftentimes we can, we can interpret that to mean everything I want, everything I aspire to, God's gonna hook me up with it, right? Uh, God's gonna give me friends. God's gonna give me health. God's gonna give me some popularity. God's gonna give me some relative comfort and peace. All the many things that we aspire to that our culture suggests are valuable and even necessary, God, like Santa Claus, will hook it up. But notice, notice what God has for you. He doesn't just have good for you. He doesn't just have comfort for you. He doesn't just have what you aspire to or what you dream for for you. He has glory for you. At the beginning of our passage, we read in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give this to you. Notice God's called the Father of glory. That is, he is the Father who is glorious. He is marked. He's characterized by glory. This, this term that refers to his weightiness, his gravitas, to put it in, in more modern words. And notice in verse 18 when it describes the inheritance that he has for us when it describes the riches that he has for us, it's called the riches of his glorious inheritance. It's not just wealth. It's not just a large estate. It's, it's not just uh, a weighty thing to receive from a, a, a deceased parent, but rather a glorious inheritance. That is an inheritance that is characterized by glory. So the God who is himself glory wants to give you the riches of glory. In other words, he doesn't just want to bless me with the things I aspire to. He wants to see and raise my aspirations by giving me himself. He wants to take my petty desires and ratchet up the volume, as it were, and give me something so much louder, so much stronger, so much more satisfying himself. We see that in verse 23 at the end of the passage that the one who is himself full shares that fullness and fills all, right? That, that God's perfection, his joy, his fullness, his richness, the fact that he has everything he might need or want in himself, that that's not closed off, that's not kept from us, but that the redemption we have in Jesus is a lens that tells us that's for us too, to be rich and full, God doesn't have to live like one of us in a sort of closed community with a gate in front of it to keep people away that they might not steal it or take it. God, his richness and fullness is such that he can actually share without losing, that he can give without giving himself away, and that he longs to give us riches, and one of those riches is to give us bigger eyes to see what we really need and what we're actually made for, for him for the glory that he himself is and for the glory that he alone is. You see, it's, it's not simply as we so often think, kind of understand myself, I understand my problems, but I can't understand perfection or God or truth or goodness, right? You know, we, we might often think, if you've watched the Olympics like me, I swim from time to time, 
I'm cognizant of the fact that I don't have perfect form, right? Kind of understand what's wrong with my stroke, as it were, with my physical capacity to swim fast and, and far. And then Michael Phelps, right? Or Katie Ledecky swims. And I don't understand the perfection of what seems to be their flawless way of swimming, right? I'm aware that they're doing things and they're capable of things that go beyond my understanding, right? Because they have, they have power. They have self-awareness in the water that, that I simply lack. And I, I'm inclined to think, I know what's wrong with me, but I don't understand what's right with them. But you know, if, if, if I'm honest, I'm actually a lot worse than I think. And, and don't worry, you're there with me, I think. Um, it's not just that I don't understand all the right things Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky's doing, but because I don't understand them, because I don't understand the perfection of swimming, I actually don't even know all the different ways that I'm committing heinous sins against the art of swimming. The ways in which my freestyle stroke is, is really rather pathetic. I mean, I know it's, it's bad, but I don't know how bad. I know that I, I ought to desire to swim better, but I actually don't even know all the different ways that being better would look like because I don't have an understanding of all the things they're doing right beyond getting from A to B really, really fast. So it is with God. God doesn't simply meet your current expectations for what improving your life and fulfilling your desires and for blessing you would look like. But God actually takes our frail sense that we're needy creatures and in Christ, he shows us our ever greater need and he fulfills it. That he shows us how we're so much more needy than we thought and yet he is our all in all. And the one who is himself fulfills all in all. And the one who is glory wants to give you the inheritance of glory. And so the first thing we see here as we look at the redemption we have in Christ Jesus is quite simply that we see God wants to give us glory and nothing less. And that God is for you, not against you. The second thing we see here is that the God who's for you has the power to bless you. And in verse 19, we read of that immeasurably great power of God. Verse 19 speaks of something else that you might know. Paul prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You know, you probably have that uncle too. I think we all do, somewhere. Maybe a neighbor, maybe a coworker, maybe a sibling. They mean well and they cause greater trouble. How are you doing? And you tell them, Mistake number one, right? And they say, oh, I understand your problem. Let me make a call, right? That would be mistake number two, right? They desire to do you well. They desire to share from their experience. They desire to lend a hand or to help you along the way. They want to help, but they're inept 
they're ignorant, they're incapable of making good on their promise. You know this person. You have experienced this person, perhaps in the mirror from time to time, right? We realize it's, it's one thing to want to help somebody, right? It's another thing to be able to deliver. I mean, we see this, we're in a political season. It's, it feels like it's always campaign season, but we're really in campaign season now. It's a season of promises, right? And there are competing visions of what would be good, and that's a major question all of us have to assess. What would be good? What would be a, a good aim for us as a, a community or a city or a state or a nation to aim for? But there's a second question, isn't there? Once we sort of agree on what would be a good to aim for, there's the question of, is this person remotely competent and able to deliver on all the many glorious things they promise, right? Can I look at their track record and actually begin to think that they have a hope of possibly delivering on these lofty promises? Are they really going to make me more financially secure, right? Are they really going to protect the country? Are they really going to create more jobs? Are they really going to knit back together the fabric of our society? Are they really going to deliver on all these Herculean aspirations that they put before us, right? We see it in politics. We see it in our own interactions with family and friends. It's one thing to wish someone well, it's another thing to be able to pull it off. Think about the gospel. It's one thing to say that God wants to bless you with glory, and it's another thing for God to be able to bless you with glory. It's one thing to be able, as you lay your head down at night, to pray, God, I trust that you want to bless me in Jesus Christ and that through his death and resurrection you want to provide for my every need. It's another thing to be able to lay your head down and with confidence, with assurance, to trust that that actually will come true. You see this in the Bible. Paul, the same Paul here, wrote the congregation in Rome and in Romans 8, Paul gives some of the most remarkable words of assurance you find anywhere in the Bible. If you're in a hospital sort of at someone's deathbed, or if you're in a funeral home, these are the words you, you pull out, right? That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, right? That neither life nor death, things present, things to come, right? That nothing in all creation can separate you from the love God has for you in Christ. That is a remarkable promise. But it's rather remarkable. Paul, immediately after Romans 8, realizes there's a, a, a dilemma that the Roman audience will wonder, well, that's great, but does God actually deliver on his promises? Because we know long ago he promised lots of things to the Jewish people, to Israel, and they don't seem to be flourishing at the moment. Has the word of God, has the promise failed? And so Romans 9 to 11 are a really long answer to assure us that the God who promises great things has the greatness to deliver on those great promises. It's no good to read Romans 8 unless you can, with Romans 9 to 11, know that God pulls through, that he doesn't fail, that he's not like that uncle or aunt who wants to help you but gets you into a bigger jam, right? Well, here, Paul describes four different ways in which we see God's immeasurably great power and that God's great power is something that affects 
all, according to verse 23. First here in verses 20 to 23, he talks about the center of God's revelation of his power in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. It, it speaks here in verse 20 that he worked this great power in raising Jesus from the dead and in taking him up and seating him at the Father's right hand and in putting all things under his feet that Jesus has been exalted as Lord. And so we can speak of what we call his resurrection from the dead his ascension on high, and his exaltation as Lord of all things. Great power is essential. If a dead guy in a tomb is going to wind up as a living person in the heavens. And Paul tells us, I pray you'd have eyes to see that, to see that great power worked in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a great work that has ripple effects throughout all of creation. And as you look at this, it's a lens for seeing God's work in so many other areas of our lives. It's like being on a, a large lake and seeing a, a high-speed powerboat go by. And it's, it's not only remarkable to see a boat moving along, people on it having a wonderful time cruising across the lake, but it also has ripple effects on so many others. I like to kayak, and when a high-speed boat goes by, it changes things a bit. That's actually kind of fun in a certain way, but you're dealing with, with the waves that are caused by the wake. And if you're swimming on the shore of a lake and a boat goes by, it's gonna start to cause waves, and kids can play and enjoy that. It, it changes the nature of the experience for people all over, and the resurrection of Jesus is like that. At the center of history, it provides a lens so that we can see effects and implications everywhere. And it's fascinating. Here in Ephesians 2 and 3, we see it in three different ways. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we see the resurrection of Jesus and the working of God's great power leads to our redemption to God. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 describe how we're dead in our sins. And then Ephesians 2, 4 to 10 describe how we've now been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenlies and we're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it's God's gift in that wonderful, powerful work of resurrection. And so we can be redeemed to God and set right with him to enjoy his presence, to be in his presence in the heavens enjoying his glory. But then in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, it talks about how another implication is that it reconciles us each to the other. And it, it addresses one way that we're divided. There are lots of ways we get divided, aren't there? The haves and the have-nots, the 1%, the, the 99%, people of different skin color, different gender, different socioeconomic background, right, different religious background. There are lots of ways we're divided, but the most significant way humans have ever been divided is the one where God divided us, Jew and Gentile. In different times and settings, we may think other things are significant. We may think educated or uneducated people experience life in radically different ways, or people with means and people without financial means experience it in marked different ways, or men and women and so forth. But the one way that was marked out by God himself, not just by our perception, not just by our assumption, 
but by God on high is Jew and Gentile, right? You read the Old Testament, and the Israelites and the Egyptians have a rather different experience if you read the book of Exodus, right? And it's not just the, the happenstance of history, but the declaration, the election, the work of God himself. And even that, that most significant division between the Jews and all the rest, those of us who are Gentiles, even that is reconciled in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. That there was a wall and it has been broken and that he himself is our peace. And that having redeemed us to God the Father, he reconciles us also to each other. And so while it may look like the fabric of society is tearing apart and people are acrimoniously at each other's throats, the redemption we have in Christ provides a lens whereby we see people actually being reconciled to each other by faith. And where we see the hope, not just of the glory of God's presence, but of the goodness of human community being woven together again as even Jew and Gentile link arms and together lift their hearts before God in praise and worship. And the resurrection doesn't just redeem us to God and reconcile us to each other, but in chapter three, verses one to 13, we read of how it reorients our calling. Paul, the perhaps most famous opponent of the church of Jesus Christ, a persecutor, someone who would go around and seek to do in the people of God, those who would proclaim the name of Jesus. This Paul speaks in 3.2 of how he's given a stewardship of grace. He's given something to watch over. He's given a calling, and his life is set on a new trajectory. And perhaps you look at your life. You look at your Monday to Friday, and you feel like, what would it take for me to get a job? I keep applying, and it doesn't work out. Or what would it take for me to find full employment and to really be used and not to be underutilized and not to feel like I've got more to give? Or perhaps you're in a job and you're overused and you feel like it's to no end, it's to no benefit, it's rather aimless. You're just clocking in and clocking out. Or perhaps you're retired and you wonder, am I just coasting on past laurels and accomplishments? What, what is the purpose or the end of my existence for these 10, 20, 30 years to come? Here we see Paul. Paul, whose vocation seemed to be most antithetical to God's ways, even this Paul gets reoriented and God makes him a witness. God gives him a calling that the resurrection power of Jesus takes even his aimless work and reorients it to the sake of God's kingdom and the blessing of God's people. How much more then do we think that we who perhaps are aimless or frustrating or struggling or searching for our sense of calling, that God can powerfully intervene and reorient us that we might live for his kingdom, that we might seek his name and his glory? In three different ways then, redeeming us to God, reconciling us to each other, reorienting our direction, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the great power found there gives us a lens to see that God doesn't just offer us the hope of glory, but he has immeasurably great power to bring it about. You know, as we, as we think about these words in this prayer 
what might be a good aspiration for every Christian, that we would increasingly know this to be so, that God desires to give us glory and that he has the power to make that reality for you. We might do well to remember that our our first impulse may be wrong. We live in a suspicious age, right? I mean, I hate to admit it, but every time I go in the grocery store, I am sickened when I walk there and I see the gossip rags. And I'm not sick, not for the reason that you probably first think. It's not just that I'm offended by what's on them and that that I don't want to see that or something. I'm, I'm offended and sickened precisely because it works. Because we're the kind of people who don't want to be taken by leaders, by the important, by celebrities. And so we're the kind of people who will buy and read and consume every possible cynical take on what's going on in the world because there's nothing worse than thinking too much of someone in our day and age, isn't there? We're a cynical, suspicious age. But you know what? As you read the Bible and as you consider Paul's prayer here, there's something just as bad as believing too much. And that's seeing too little. And maybe each of us who are inundated in the suspicion and the cynicism, not wanting to be taken, not wanting to have a fast one pulled on us, not wanting to be oblivious to what's really going on, perhaps we would do well to actually have our imaginations widened, to have our eyes enlightened. I think about the words of the great writer J.R.R. Tolkien, famous for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, And he wrote a piece called On Fairy Stories. And he said this in that essay. He said, God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. But in God's kingdom, the presence of the greatest doesn't depress the small. Redeemed man is still man. Story, fantasy, they still go on and they should go on. The Christian has still to work with mind as well as body to suffer, hope, and die. But, but, he may now perceive that all his bents and faculties have a purpose which can be redeemed. So great is the bounty with which he's been treated that he may now perhaps fairly dare to guess that in fantasy he may actually assist in the effoliation and multiple enrichment of creation. All tales may come true, and yet at the last, redeemed. They may be as like and as unlike the forms that we give them as man, finally redeemed, will be like and unlike the fallen that we know. Perhaps it's helpful from time to time to have somebody who writes about elves to remind us that there's more going on than makes the news. Perhaps that's helpful as we consider Paul's word and prayer that even we who are in Christ, who are in the body, and who are called to witness to him, we too need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. We need to have those corrective lenses that we might see more, that we might be alert to what God is up to and to the ways in which he seeks out our glory and the ways in which he puts his immeasurably great power to work on your and my behalf. Let's pray and ask that God would make that so. Father, with Paul, we rejoice and give you thanks 
for faith and love. We know your kindness and we have sung of it. We have greeted one another. We have sensed your presence. And we pray that even now as we come to your table in a moment, that your goodness and your mercy and your desire to feed us and your desire to fill us would be palpable. And we pray that just as real as that bread and wine, so we would have eyes in our hearts to know and to perceive that your love and compassion is just as real and tangible. And we pray, Father, that if ever we doubt and struggle to believe that you have the power, the wherewithal, the commitment and the faithfulness to deliver on each and every one of your promises, that we would be reminded that they are yes in Christ. And that having done the great thing in raising him from the dead and drawing him out of that tomb and seating him on high and putting everything under his feet, that we might know that you long to redeem and to reconcile and to reorient all things that you might be all in all, and that the fullness that is yours would fill everything, the heavens, the earth, this world, and every nook and cranny of our very selves. And so we pray for your grace and for Christ's peace this day and evermore.